Okay, um, last week we did an introduction to Ephesians, and we're going to get into part one of uh, the first chapter, verses 1 through 12. And the reason I've picked 1 through 12 as the part that we're going to go through a couple times in the next few weeks is because it deals with a topic that is big, uh, election, predestination, uh, big stuff, big here in Ephesians chapter 1, because he starts right off and he hits us with some stuff uh, that deals with that topic. And um, I think you're going to be surprised at the way that it can be addressed without falling into the trap of, of predestination and election for everybody. That's really the question. Is this to application? Does it have, have application to everybody everywhere? Or is Paul talking about a specific limited audience? And we'll talk about that. So we read last week, Paul, this is the introduction, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is going to give us the line that we're going to talk about right off the bat. Who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? Okay, so that last line, I think, is important to remember because what Paul is saying to the believers there, uh, and remember, this epistle is believed to be a circular epistle, meaning that the churches would, uh, they would have it and then they would pass it on to another church at another place. And they would, it might be first begin at the, to the church at Coloss and all believers in Christ. And then somebody would copy it and they would send it to the church at Ephesus or to the church at uh, Corinth. It was a circular epistle. This copy happens to be the church at uh, Ephesus. So he says, this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. It stopped. So I think the last line is important to remember. What does it say here? How has God blessed them? What does Paul say? He says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's really important. Um, since the kingdom of God is not of this world, uh, and since our citizenship in that kingdom is spiritual, it's not physical, it's spiritual. The kingdom is spiritual. And so our citizenship of it is spiritual too. To me, though the name it and claim it people say otherwise, they say, no, 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 uh, if you tell God, in Jesus' name, give me a Rolls Royce, he'll give you a Rolls Royce. Uh, the name it and claim it people, uh, I don't agree with at all, in part because of something that Paul says here. He's blessed, God blesses his children in spiritual things and in heavenly places. That's where the blessings come upon those who are his. Uh, so much so that that's, uh, he's done all that for those who are in Christ, Paul says there. So I think this because if you think about it, have you ever thought, how come God sends the rain upon uh, the good and the evil? 
How come in a destruction, 9-11 or something that happens, there are good people and there are bad people who are killed? How come there are people who don't believe in God at all, who do very well in this life? And how come there are people who believe in God apparently and who did terribly in this life? Why do we have these injustices with how things happen in this world? And I would suggest uh, that to you. I think it's because the same God blesses all people, irrespective. He's not a respecter of persons in this realm. He sends the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He heals and he takes the good and, uh, and the evil here and he deals with them equally. And he blesses both. So I think it's important as Christians, you know that here in this realm, in the material world, you're not going to receive preferential treatment to what a non-believer gets. That isn't how God seems to bless us in, uh, as Christians. He blesses us, as Paul says here, with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You see? So the name it and claimants, they want to say, if you become a Christian, you'll have more wealth here and you'll have this and that. And I really don't believe that is the case. I, I find that to be uh, a, a, an ugly principle. So uh, whatever you want to think of it. Uh, but I do say it because of, remember Eve and what tempted her? And do you remember Jesus, what tempted Jesus when he went into the wilderness and was tempted? There were three things he was tempted with. So was Eve. John sizes those things up that Eve was tempted with and John was tempted with by saying all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not, is not of the father. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the money, the wealth, the opulence, that's not of God, right? But is of this world is what he says. And so what is here is here. What goes on here goes on here. He's the creator. He feeds the just and the unjust alike. He sends the rain to fall on everybody. In this economy, he is just doing what he does. Um, but what is there is there. And those are spiritual things in heavenly places. And those who are his, they are storing up those spiritual treasures. They're not mansions. They're not gold uh, floored mansions like we want to. There's something else. There's spiritual blessings in heavenly places for those who choose to look in faith to him here. But I would suggest never associate your material standing in this earth with your faith. I, I never, I don't think you should associate those. In fact, in my experience, at least, and this is just me, I've seen the reversal. Uh, I, I've seen it more difficult here as a believer than a non-believer. And uh, so whatever that's worth. Uh, the two worlds are mutually exclusive in my estimation. Of course, there are always, always exceptions to every rule. And so, but generally speaking, it's impossible to serve two masters according to what Jesus says. And this is proven in the cases of believers in this world. If you're really sold out, you just don't seem to be able to have everything in this world. There seems to be a trade-off somehow. Uh, I, it's, I guess it's sort of like an Olympic champion. If you're going to be an Olympic speed skater, I doubt it very much that you can also, at the same time, while you're training to be the Olympic speed skater, also be a great artist in, uh, in some other form and also be a business mogul. You, you can't do it. 
You're gonna have to focus on one or the other and give everything to it to really achieve the highest levels, right? And so uh, because of the intensity of the focus, there isn't much time for an Olympian to do anything else uh, that I'm talking about. So if someone is a casual participant in some Olympic event, fine, but it's possible. But it's the same thing with being like a Christian. If you're going to sort of be a casual Christian and a casual businessman and a casual this, you'll probably be casually successful in everything too. But if you want to really focus on something and you have your eyes single to that thing, uh, you probably will lose out in other areas. And that just seems to be the rule of thumb. I'm not even sure it's heavenly directed. It's just the way it seems to work. So, but those who have sold out, bought in, they have their eyes kind of single to, I'm gonna live in this world, I'm gonna do my best here, but I'm gonna focus on the eternal spiritual things, which is love, by the way, in every sense of the word. When you can focus on living by that, you are depositing to the treasuries of your future there. And that is something that will carry on after you leave here. The love, the Christian love that you give to others, truly, that is something that abides beyond this world in, 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 in what I see. So, uh, and with this as the preface, we enter into our verses on predestination foreordination, predestination, election. And um, first of all, I just have to admit some things. Uh, we're gonna start off slow, and I just want to admit, I personally have a disdain, actually a hatred for reform theology. I do not think it is good at all. It has some good results, we're gonna talk about those but it also has some bad. Just like Mormonism has some good results, but it also has some bad. And any ism or ist that is presented to us that comes from the mind of a human will have good, that's why it's embraced, but if you look at the bad that it brings and you try to balance those, it, you'll find it faulty. That's why I find it inferior. But I have to come to you and admit this prejudice right off the top, or I wouldn't be fair. Um, I detest the fabric of it, and I think it's the, a, a heinous interpretation of Scripture, and I think it's anathematic to the end thing that God wants from us, which is love. And for that reason, I find it so heinous, okay? So uh, because of the prejudice, I have to admit that I could be blinded. That, that I have to admit, I might not see some things because of my prejudice, Maybe you'll see those come out. Sean, you're blind on this. This is, this is obvious here. And if so, bring it up at our Q&A. That's fine. Um, but uh, that being said, I also admit I try really hard to pull the scales off my eyes as a means to see where I'm wrong and what prejudices I'm missing as we will go through and address it. Uh, secondly, we can't escape the biblical fact, listen to me closely, we cannot escape the biblical fact that God does in scripture at times choose, elect, predestine some things to occur. That has to be admitted. Uh, for some people or persons to perform certain things in this world, 
for me to say that's not true would be wrong it's, it, because it's, it's biblical. We can find the, the cases of it. So we can't get around that fact because scripture supports it. Mallory, will you get me a water? The question that remains though, listen, here is the thing I want all of you to consider. Whom has God elected and chosen? Okay, you got that one? Whom has he elected and chosen? And what has he elected or chosen them to do? That's the question in the face of uh, predestination and election. It's not that uh, God doesn't ever do it. Thanks, Nicholas. But thanks. But it is who has he elected and what has he elected or chosen them to do? You see, the problem with Reformed theology, and let me just explain something. For those of you who don't know, at the Protestant Reformation, really quickly, we have the Catholic Church. They took over uh, the, the Apostolic Church of Jesus. Apostles died out. We've got about 280, 300 years. Catholic Church starts to get established. They take over for a full thousand year, 1500 years. And then at that 1500 year point, after the Catholic Church has made a mess of things, they've done good things too, but they make a mess of things. We have a Protestant Reformation where guys like Martin Luther pop up and they say, we need to change away from what the Catholics have been doing. And we have the Protestant Reformation. Part of that Protestant Reformation is a lawyer who pops up and his name is John Calvin. And John Calvin is a very smart man. He knows how to take the Bible and systematize the thing into a seamless whole. And John Calvin steps forward and he says, let me explain to you how to understand God. And he presents his teachings on his systematized view of scripture as a Protestant. And from John Calvin and his teachings came some enemies to Calvin. And those enemies stepped forward and they said, we don't believe you and what you've taught. And they summarized Calvin's teachings into a five letter word, tulip, to represent all of Calvin's teachings. So it, that, that's what I'm gonna be talking about here to help summarize for you all of Calvin's systematic teachings of scripture, all right? So the, pro, and, and, and Calvin's teachings, like volumes this big, systematized into five letters, tulip, they're called reformed theology, meaning they have been reformed from the Catholic church. And Calvin reformed them and, and, and gave us a new theology, reformed theology. It's also known as Calvinism. It's also known as five-point Calvinism. The tulip, T-U-L-I-P, right? All right. The problem with reformed theology is that it takes some singular scriptures, which are there, like the ones we're about to read, and they apply or assign it to all people in every situation. They say, look, this is in the Bible. This means it means you. This means it means everybody. And therefore it's there, it's done, it's said. They don't take context. They don't say that what Paul is talking about is to this group. And, they, and that's, that's the, one of the failures or faults of Reformed theology. 
We must understand, therefore, that the context of what is being said here and why Paul is saying it, which I'm going to give you next week, why Paul is saying it, before we can simply say, we read it and we say, yep, God has elected everything and preordained everything and we don't have free will and therefore it's done and over and blah, blah, blah. All right. So um, we can benefit from this approach to God and scripture in life in other ways, as well as to uh, try and build a case for truth. For example, suppose that this here, here's the problem with this kind of systematic thinking. Suppose that there's a family of believers who go to a public park. And while they're there, they have a toddler who wanders over to an area and there's a kidnapper who takes the toddler and runs to the car and tosses the child in the back and goes to speed away. And the family is a great distance away. And suppose that the family says, while they're running, the mother says, God, please stop this man from taking our child. And the man goes to turn the car and it doesn't turn. And so they, they are able to apprehend the man. They get their child. The police take the, the guy away. Everybody is happy. And so while God may have answered their prayer in this situation, maybe he was able to insert himself in this. Maybe it was just the fact that the car didn't start. And I know that that's, that's kind of bad to say, but you really can't tell. And the reason I say that is, does God love the child in the first family more than a child in a park across the nation where the same thing happens and they're praying that the kidnapper doesn't take the child and the kidnapper speeds away? You see, and so when we use him as a tool, we are, we are stepping in with the sovereignty bit and it's, it's a long process and we're kind of using God to our advantage. Now, what if, what if we were the family where he, the, uh, the, the kidnapper gets there and he turns the car and it starts and he goes and you never see the child again? Do you say God didn't answer? God doesn't love us as much? My faith is less? That's the problem with the first situation by saying God did that in this realm. Remember the line we just talked about at the beginning, that God blesses us with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Remember the concept that Jesus says, he lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. So we have to be really careful when we assign good and or evil indifference to God in the face of our human situation. That's why the name it and claim it guys are stepping on a slippery slope. This isn't the common rhetoric you hear in Christian churches. What we hear is, he did this, and when it doesn't go our way, we close a blind eye and don't know what to say. We have to remember what God is working in, really. He's working in time, space, choice, human freedom, faith. He's working in all of that stuff. He doesn't superimpose his will. And that's gonna, that comes back to my disdain for Calvinism, and we'll talk about that in a second. So does he preordain to saving the first child? and not preordained saving the second one, there are so many factors, and I've only touched on the surface to get you thinking, that's all I'm trying to do, is to get you starting to think about this, that you have to consider when we try to explain God's involvement in human affairs, 
In the book of Daniel, the angels come and say to Daniel, we would have gotten here sooner, but we couldn't because the demons were all around us. Did you know that? So there was something impeding heavenly angels from getting to a place earlier because the demonic forces in that book at that time were stopping them from progressing forward. And so when we overlook these factors that are at play for a good God of free will, who isn't despotic and force, who allows human beings to do good or evil, who doesn't force, when we bring all that in, it's really tough to start saying, he did this, he didn't do that. I'm just cautioning you. So all of those factors have to be taken into account when we speak about God and predestination. And we'll, we'll meet. So also mindset and preconditioning play a really big role in how we read scripture. Meaning if you're used to reading, if you believe something automatically before you get to reading the scripture, when you get to the scripture, you're going to believe what you believe and you're not going to believe what is supposed to be seen there because you're believing what you believe. It happened to me for years as a Mormon. I read the Bible several times as a Mormon, but I read it with Mormon eyes, as we say, and I could not see the evangelical or Christian view as I read it. I saw it with the Mormon eyes. And so then as an evangelical, I began to read it with evangelical eyes, and I missed things that could be seen with non-evangelical eyes. So our preconditioning causes us to read and see, and that's why you really have to seek to have your eyes blown open to see what is being said outside of Sean McCraney's opinion and outside of what your pastors and other churches and everything else have taught you. You have to seek to understand what's truly being said. So if you believe that God determines everything in individuals' lives, when we read these first 11 passages from verse four to verse 11, you're going to see Calvinism. You will. And the way to prove that is we get a Calvinist to come up here and we'll read it and he will or she will say, yep, it, that's what it means. In spite of what we're going to give next week as the counter argument. So preconditioning is, and mindset is really important to how you interpret what is being written here. So I, I have to admit this. I am so opposed to five-point Calvinism and its sway over the minds of people today, I am going to try to sway your mind to preconceive your thinking into how to see these. I do believe it's the proper way to see it. It is in opposition to what Calvinism would teach you, but I am going to explain it uh, when we get to them at the end of right now in a way to help break away from the the shackles of, of the horse things that make you just see what's right in, directly in front of you. I'm going to try to make you see outside of it. And I'm just admitting that right off the bat. But I am going to explain Calvinism of the five points honestly right now. There's nothing you're going to be able to challenge on this that is not what five-point Calvinism is. If you just listen to it, I, I would not believe anybody couldn't help but be prejudiced to it. All right? So we have the word tulip. Just remember the flower. All right? And we have the T of tulip. And the T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. The point is, in total depravity, is that when somebody, it comes to somebody choosing the things of God or choosing God himself, they cannot do that. 
They are totally depraved. They don't have the capacity to choose anything good about God. Now, this does not mean they can't choose to give their mother flowers on Mother's Day. Total depravity. It doesn't mean they they can't do good in the realm of this world. All total depravity is speaking to is humankind's relationship to God. And if we were left on our own, there's not a single human being in in John Calvin's mind that would ever say, I choose to believe in God. Okay? Can't happen. We're too depraved spiritually. We are dead spiritually as human beings. Now, of all the five points, I tend to agree with total depravity, the T, more than any of the other four. It's not that I believe in it in the same way, but I think that they are closer on total depravity than anything else. And I see it in this way that God is a good God, only good, and being so, he has created a world and he has given freedom in this world. And with that freedom, the world fell into sin and darkness and it limited human beings' ability to care about the things of heaven. Those things are gone from us. We don't see them, we don't care about them. And so God in his love built into this system of creation signs of him. He built in stars and cosmos and galaxies. He built fish of, he built 530 types of birds and he built nature and he built in love for others. He built in a capacity for forgiveness. He built in all sorts of things that speak of him, even though they don't prove him. And by doing that, he overcomes what would be our innate total depravity if he hadn't. So I would agree with total depravity that if God had not given us any evidence of himself and had not given us a love in our heart for others and an ability to forgive and do good, then I believe we would be sitting in the mud of a dystopian, ugly, horrible environment and we would be so totally depraved we wouldn't care about that. We, would, we wouldn't care about anything of the future. Our natural selves would be eat and, and, and kill and might makes right. But because he has imputed into his creation these different things to reach us, we overcome this nature and are able to reach out to him. So in that sense, I do agree with total depravity and I think that it is, there's a basis for it in, in that way. Would man naturally seek God absent the wonders he's given? I think we would be in that dystopian mud hole without any hope We would see a bleak future, a smoke-filled sky, a dirty water around us, our neighbor as, as thieves, and we would be barbarics. But because he gave us a beautiful world, I think we have more of an ability to look around and then decide to seek him uh, because of it. So, um, understood, this is not how Reformed theology speaks of total depravity. Um, To them, they are talking about on an individual basis. Even though God has created the cosmos and and, and animals and love and families and all this stuff, the Calvinist says the individual in this setting is so totally depraved spiritually, even in this setting, they will not seek God. Now, it's really important that this position is firmly established, this T, 
that total depravity, because every single one of the rest of the letters follow in after that. And so the Calvinist says, you grow up sitting in Park City, Utah. Your parents are fairly well-to-do. You've been given every blessing. You have good makeup. You have good education. You've had good nutrition. You of your own volition will not look at the beautiful skies and mountains and nature. You'll not look at the love of your family. You'll not look at what's inside your heart. You are so depraved, you would never choose anything of God. That's the first point of Calvinism. It's to the individual, totally depraved, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I think they're freaking nuts, okay? But that's what they teach. This leads to an end product that we're gonna talk about before we wrap it up. If a person is totally depraved and incapable in any way of choosing God or the things of God, then the only response to him to be saved by God is for God to step in. Now you have to understand that. This is the big difference between a Calvinist and a non-Calvinist. A Calvinist says, you didn't do anything. You were so dead in your blindness that you were just walking along and God said, I'm picking you. I'm going to pick you. And to the other person, he says, I'm not going to pick you. Okay. And that leads us to the next point in this. And that is called the unconditional election. T, total depravity. The U, the unconditional election. And what that means is God says in his wisdom, not because of anything you've done, by the way, I am going to unconditionally elect Bob up in Park City to be mine. And Bob is able to suddenly choose God because he's unconditional election means Bob has not done anything to earn this. He hasn't studied enough. He hasn't studied or prayed or fasted or cared because he's totally depraved. But Bob has been unconditionally elected by God. And with no merits of his own, Bob has been elected. Okay, there's the U for the tulip. At the same time, God says, I am not going to elect uh, Jill. I'm not going to elect her. Well, if we go back to the first rule, T, she's totally depraved, isn't she? If God does not elect her, will she ever be able to choose God? No, she will never be able to choose God. Therefore, Jill has been tacitly doomed to a burning hell forever because God has chosen not to unconditionally elect her. Did Jill do anything worse than Bob or better than Bob? No, it's unconditional. Bob and Jill are no different. But, but except for the fact that God has elected Bob, God has elected Bob, and God has not elected Jill. That's the U of unconditional election to a Calvinist, okay? And in this, we are beginning to realize that when it comes to Reformed theology or Calvinism, all the letters work in harmony with each other. If people are totally depraved, then and there's nothing they can do to choose God, then God must step in and choose. Unconditional election. 
what does he choose by? And I'll just rem remind you of this. He doesn't choose because you're smart. He doesn't choose you because you're, you've studied. He doesn't choose you because you have more faith, because you've read the Bible. He chooses you because he wants to choose you. This is really important to remember. And that's why I'm emphasizing it. All right. Because of that, there's no such thing as a four point Calvinist. It's got to be all five letters. There's no three. There's no two. If anyone ever says, oh, I'm a three point, you're, that's, it does not work that way. Okay. You're either a Calvinist, a reformed theologian, five points, or you're nothing. So don't, don't get that mixed up. All right. It's like, it's like uh, believing in Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals MC squared, but removing the E or removing the M or the C or the squared. You can't have it, right? Okay, just remember that. The next point, so we've had what? Total depravity. We've had God unconditionally, based on nothing anyone's done, electing someone to choose him and to look to him and have a relationship with him. And then we come to the L, and it stands for Jesus and what he did. Limited atonement. Limited atonement. And since man is completely depraved, totally depraved, insomuch that God must elect to pick him or out of the group, right? Then God would not have his only human son suffer for the sins of the whole world because God isn't going to elect the whole world. God is only going to elect some who he wants to elect. And since God knows who he is going to unconditionally elect, there's going to be a limited L atonement. In other words, Calvinists believe when Jesus was on the cross, he suffered for the sins of those who God was going to but not for the rest. Limited atonement. Now, most Christians, they don't understand that and they think, Jesus, oh yeah, he died for everybody, the sins of the world. And the passages in the Bible to support that are, are so many and they're so good. For all, all men, it says. All people, everyone. It says it so many times. You can't bring those up with the Calvinists. They don't believe all means all in that case. There was a limited atonement. Who did Jesus suffer for? The sins that God of the elect, that God would pick. That's it. There would be no reason for Jesus to pay for the sins of a world that God was not going to elect uh, out of their total depravity. And uh, you see how they're all linked to each other now? All right. So for this reason, Calvinists teach that Jesus did not suffer unnecessarily for those God would not elect, but only for those that God would elect uh, of his own free will and choosing, never the merit of the individual involved. The implication of this point called limited atonement are that if Jesus paid for the sins of the elect some 2,000 years ago, listen to me closely. If Jesus paid for the elect of the sins of only the elect 2,000 years ago, here in 2019, someone who Jesus did not pay for cannot possibly ever be reconciled to God or saved. They can't be. 
because Jesus didn't pay for their sin 2,000 years ago, you see. So when you say he only paid for the sins of some back 2,000 years ago, you then have a forward audience as a Calvinist that you're saying, well, he elected me, I know, because I, I don't know how they know, but they know that he was, they were elected. But if somebody doesn't believe like they believe, they weren't elected, and therefore that Jesus never paid for their sins, so therefore they're dog meat. They just, they just don't matter. God doesn't even know who they are, according to the Calvinist. God doesn't love them in the least. They're just dog meat. You got to understand that is part of this mentality. So, someone 2,000 years ago is flat out damned if Jesus didn't pay for their sins back then. And you have a child today, and you have five children, and Jesus paid for the sins of two of them. The other three are done when it comes to that. And they're not only done, they're going to burn in hell forever. Because God chose to not point at them. Now, when religions, systems of religion become seamless, they make a great deal of sense in the logical mind. And they tend to stay around because of the logical sense they make to people. If they don't do this, they don't last. So there are sensical foundations which make Calvinism work for a certain minded person. If it didn't, it would not have lasted. Mormonism is a seamless body of theology that works in the minds of people. If it didn't work, it wouldn't have lasted. See, the ones that are kind of fall apart with stupidity after a while, the wheels come off after 100 miles, they're gone. But it's only the seamless ones that have the most teeth that last, and Calvinism's one of them. Whether even those these first three uh, letters are astoundingly disturbing, they do work in the mind of somebody who is more linear thinking, you might say. So that was the case of Mormonism, which has a plan of salvation, which is pretty seamless, really is. Uh, and Calvinism, which though seamless, is really disturbing when you think about it, because as a basis of this theory, if you haven't already seen it, have you seen what is the basis of Calvinism? It's called determinism. Determinin, determinism. Determinism is God determines, and that's it. He's determined what will be. And this is huge underpinning of all Reformed theology, that God has determined it, he will do it, and that's it. There's nothing more to say about it. Determinism, determinism ignores free will. That is a lie to Calvinists. There is no such thing as free will of any sort. You don't choose anything in Calvinism. God chooses and you fall in according to how he's chosen for you to play your part. And if he's chosen for half of your family not to be his, you who have been elected rejoice that God chose you. And the fact that he didn't choose the rest of them uh, he, in fact, has chosen them by not choosing them to burn in hell forever is a joy. And you're glad to play the role that you play as someone who's been elected. So the idea that human beings are incapable of making a choice. Within Calvinism, the determinism is predicated on whom they call, ready, it's a big word, 
the sovereign God, the sovereign God, it's huge in Calvinism. And the sovereign God is a God whose will and ways determine everything, all right? The fact that you are even seeking God today is a product of him deciding that you are seeking him. You're totally depraved, you see. So he unconditionally elected you to seek it. Jesus paid for your uh, sins, but not for your neighbors. And that's all part of the sovereign God's plan. Interestingly, just listen, atheism is determinist in its foundation too. If you don't know this, you don't understand atheism. Atheism says that there is no such thing as free will. What they say is, but they, they take God out of that picture. They, they, don't, they don't include God in the picture. They say, what has happened to you is you're a product of your birth, genetics, upbringing, and experience. And because of those factors in your life, you don't have a choice to do what you want to do or be who you want to be. You are so presuppositioned in your environment that you are going to be a Muslim who wears blue toenail polish on Wednesdays. That is nothing to do with your choice. You're just um, <clears throat> taking actions based off everything that's happened to you. It's another form of determinism. All right? In Calvinism, we have seen thus far that human beings are without choice. A sovereign God, therefore, must step into their totally depraved existence. He must unconditionally elect them to be his. Jesus then has paid for their sins on a limited basis because he knew God would, uh, God knew who uh, he would elect. And uh, we are left. In my estimation, this deterministic view is a basis of evil. I think it's one of the most evil things on earth. I see determinism as evil in atheism, and I see determinism evil in Calvinism, which is why I so boldly stand against it. Um, I'm not saying people who are Calvinists are evil, and I'm not saying that people who are atheists are evil either. I'm just saying their philosophy is based and rooted in evil because I cannot believe in such determinism in this, uh, in this world. However, we are all comforted by something in the face of limited atonement. Not comforted, we're confronted with something. You ready? Here's the thinking, and I'm gonna give you the opposite side. If Jesus paid for the sin of the whole world, then are we still sinning? Hasn't the whole world been reconciled to God? This is why the logical John Calvin said, no, 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 no. He only paid for those who are his, who he elects. Because John Calvin knows from scripture that if Jesus did pay for the sin of the whole world, then the whole world has been reconciled to God. You understand? So if you reject the limited atonement and you embrace the idea that Jesus suffered for your sins and the sins of everybody else to ever live, you have to be confronted honestly with the idea of total reconciliation. 
that God has taken care of the whole world and all of its faults by his own uh, self, not with our input, just like he did with Abraham and the covenant he made with him. And God has done the work to redeem and reconcile the world back to himself. That's how I see it. That's how I believe it. Because I'm not a Calvinist and I do believe in a universal atonement. And if Jesus did pay for the sins of everybody, how is God mad at anybody? And Calvin knew that being as smart as he was. And so he reversed it back. He said, no, it's a limited atonement. And that's what he gave us. You got to confront yourself with that idea. You have to ask yourself, what do I think? Because did Jesus pay for the sins of the whole world? And you mean God had his son hanging on a cross, suffering for the sins of Mark in 2072 or 1972, who's going to reject him? And, and Jesus suffered for him. And then Mark rejects him. And then Mark is going to go pay again twice for what Jesus already paid for? No. Calvin's smart. He knew that it's a limited atonement because if it's a full atonement, then God has reconciled the world to himself completely. You got to think about it. The eye of tulip after limited atonement is irresistible grace. And what this is saying is that since God has decided to look at a totally depraved person and he has unconditionally elected him. The guy's a reprobate or he's a prince, doesn't matter. He has elected him. And Jesus has paid for his sin through a limited atonement. What, when God reaches down and saves him and says, you're gonna believe on my son and be mine, that thing that God gives to the person is irresistible. Remember, there's no free will. So there's irresistible grace. God has stepped in and pointed at me. Boom, I can't resist. There's no free will. So the eye in the tulip is there's irresistible grace. You can't choose to say no. Uh, like Balaam's ta talking donkey. God tells you to talk, you're going to talk. And there's a lot of this thinking that goes on inside and outside Reformed theology within Christianity. God said, I couldn't resist, you know? We see resisting of God all the time, all the time in Scripture. We see Jonah, he takes off. Yeah, he gets in trouble and all sorts of things. We see you can resist. But to the Calvinist, when God picks you, there's no resisting. I've spent quite a bit of time with Reformed theologians, both in a, a formal setting and in a casual setting as friends hanging out, like even at restaurants and talking with them and, uh, and, and watching them and listening to them. And, and I want to say a couple things. Without exception, I, fought, I find the following two things present with them, okay? And this is the product of their beliefs. First, they unitedly, everyone I know, loves, totally respects, and has a deep-rooted, abiding love for God. They really do. They, I mean, God is the sovereign God. And they respect God truly for being there. Uh, which is often missing in, in other believers. I got it, you have to admit. They're so committed mentally and emotionally to the sovereign God. Remember, I'm, I'm going to keep putting him in, in those terms. And they respond to him with utmost 
he's everything, devotion. And every Reformed theologian that I've known personally has this respect. Um, it makes great sense when you think about the four points we've already covered, doesn't it? That, admittedly, their honor and respect for God in and of itself is a beautiful thing. It's the positive thing in and of itself of a Calvinist because they look to the sovereign God as the one who took them as a totally depraved individual, unconditionally elect them, had them participate in a limited atonement, gave them his irresistible grace. I mean, boom, they love this sovereign God. They have seen themselves as having done nothing to choose him. So it's a humble position. They see themselves as having been chosen by him for his own will and ways. Uh, and they see Jesus as paying for the sin. And since they are incapable of refusing it, they are utterly beholden to this so sovereign God for their everything. The way the believer is, is right in harmony with what the doctrine is. And you find that in a, in a five-point Calvinist. They respond to the a sovereign God this way. So what these views do in culmination, though, is they take God and they put him high, high, high on the throne, which is where God should be, unquestionably. And they make him the sole focus of everything a Reformed person says and does because he genuinely is, in their mind, responsible for their entire existence in him. And so they seem to utter adoration for God in this respect. But it leads to a very unfortunate side effect. A negative result from this is they generally are obtuse, arrogant, mean, you might say mean, cold toward the human condition, and quite antithetical to the principles Jesus elucidated when he walked the earth. You don't see the Calvinists embracing the, the principles of the fruit of the Spirit. I rarely see it. You see meanness. You see a product of cold, obtuse, just like condescendingness toward the rest of the world. Almost like a, I'm going to enjoy watching you burn in hell kind of view. They tend to hate the word love. They don't like that word much. Uh, they tend to love the word justice. Justice is really big with them. And because they had nothing to do with anything relative to their status before God, they tend to, how can I say this, see themselves as special relative to the rest of the world. They don't say it, but it comes out that way in their relation to others. It doesn't come out that way in their relation to God. He's the sovereign. It's his will he chooses. There's his respect to him. They don't, they aren't like, yeah, I hate. They're, they're more like God has done it, but to you. And so you get the one part that's pretty good, but you don't get the, this part that's right with the Calvinist toward others. And they're kind of like cruise ship people who are on the best floor of the ship. 
who they won't really engage much with the riffraff. They, they, they stay on their own level. And if they engage with the riffraff, they'll do it for a while. But if it comes down to it, they will just get out of my face. I gave you the upside of them. They, they love the sovereign God. Well, they say they do. But when it comes to human beings, no. No, the product is the rest of the world are unelected. Look at, if my father didn't elect them, why should I care about them? If God himself doesn't choose them, why would I? So they don't. Seamless religions do two things of philosophies of men. First, they last because they have good results in the minds of the people who embrace them, like true Calvinist allegiance to God. It's, it's a good thing. But secondly, they always help produce something that is just antithetical to the whole gospel picture that we find in the New Testament. There's always that other side that you're like, they have so much going on, but this other side is here too. What is going on here? That's a man-made system that people embrace. In this case, it's a, it's a hubris. It's, it's a pride because they've been elected and God didn't elect the others. And so they think that you can malign and ignore others. In my estimation, this negative reality in the face of such positive allegiance to God is the byproduct of overemphasizing the first four tulip points. The T, the U, the L, and the I. It's a byproduct of that. In making human beings totally depraved, those who are not elected are then seen as one continually depraved. They're still depraved, right? Two, incapable of doing anything about it. Kindling for an eternal hell and therefore worthy of a disdain. In making God the sovereign who elects people unconditionally, they seem to see themselves as unconditionally protected and loved and chosen by the sovereign God. And since they did nothing to be elected by him, remember this, they did nothing to be elected by him. They seem to feel that they can do nothing to make him angry at them because he elected them which they couldn't refuse. And so they have a, an, of an, an attitude of entitlement. I am God's. Who can be against me? I can be this way because he's elected me. The, the sovereign God has elected me. So I can be this way. And they are that way. They're mean. They're flat out mean. I'll say it without, without hesitation. Not all, there's always exceptions, always exceptions, but most. In believing Jesus paid for the sins only of the elect of whom they are a part, why would they ever need to kindly appeal to those who oppose them? This is the, the next part. The third thing that you will find with the Calvinists is that if you oppose them, you are obviously not the elect. You're still totally depraved. The limited atonement hasn't applied to you. Therefore, you are anathema. And they can treat you and say anything they want about you because you are never part of the true ones that, because you've disagreed with them. And they're the ones who have the systematic theology in place. So back to 
the last two points of uh, five-point Calvin. The first, the, the I that I already mentioned, which represents irresistible grace, you can't refuse it. And here is where we get that big title for God in Calvinism. Because the grace is irresistible, why is it irresistible? Because God is a sovereign. God is a sovereign. And um, that is a word that John Calvin took from the kings of his day who were sovereigns. And he said, if our kings are sovereigns, then our God is truly a sovereign. Okay? Nowhere in scripture is that word even translated from any other language sovereign used. Nowhere. But our God is a sovereign God. You've heard, you know, that word is all the way from John Calvin, a sovereign God. The word sovereign means all powerful, ultimate authority can do anything God always gets his way, God. That's what sovereign means. You ever heard someone say, God can do anything? My wife used to say that all the time. Finally, when I decided I would be willing to argue with her, I decided to say, no, he can't. Uh, What are you talking about? He can do anything. No, he can't. He can do anything. He can't. Well, how can you say that? It says it in scripture. Scripture says God can't lie. He can't. Guess what? A sovereign king can lie. An earthly sovereign king is more powerful in what they can choose to do than the God that we worship. Did you know that scripture says God cannot be tempted with evil? Nor does he tempt people to do evil. That's the scripture. He cannot be tempted with evil. And he can't tempt others to do evil. Cannot. Our God cannot not love. He is love. Love is him. He cannot be the opposite of that. Our God has no darkness in him. Did you know scripture says that? There is not a speck of shadow or darkness in God. So you can't say he's a sovereign God. He can have have darkness. You can't do that. Calvin took God and he made him more like a sovereign king than, than, than he did anything else. And that is how... Calvinists see God as this God who can and will do anything, including create a world of people where most of them he's not going to elect and he'll send them to a place to burn forever in literal screaming agony, you see. Once you start with one false uh, uh, principle uh, toward the conclusion, your premises are going to lead to everything being false. And that's what he's done. So he borrowed the the term sovereign from kings of the land whose own kingdoms, they were sovereign. They could do anything they wanted. They could be merciful or not. Our God uh, is merciful. They could take their chambermaid to bed. Our God does not. So we've, we've legitimized God by applying sovereign to him. Instead, it's used all, all the time today by Calvinists. Sovereigns have total control over their kingdom. I don't believe our God does. In the end, I think our God will get his way, but it's by and through the means he operates, not like a sovereign operates. I don't think he can be duplicitous. I don't think he can lie. I don't think he will lie. He is a good God. And therefore he has limitations in, in the free will and choices of others and demonic powers and all the things we've talked about. But Calvin says, no, 
God wants to do this, boom, he does it, it's done. And that's the God they worship. And we see such a God reflected in the, in the points of Reformed theology, don't we? That's the kind of God you see. And to me, I can almost see the Reformed God as a king uh, on a throne over a giant kingdom. And, and the king sees all of his subjects as being peasants in the mud. He was raised in royalty. That sovereign is full of money and power, wine, women, and song. And he sits on this thing and he looks out at his kingdom and he says, they're just a bunch of peasants. But I need to have some friends and people to clap when I walk by. So I'm going to pick a third of them to come into my kingdom. This is what Calvin's God is like. And so he picks a third arbitrarily. He just says, take that third and bring them in. And they change their clothes and they get all gussied up and they live in the kingdom. <coughs> They have all the food, they have crowns, they have a lifestyle that they can't believe. And his elected children then in turn become haughty and arrogant toward everybody else. And they look at the other ones that they used to be a part of as lesser. And, uh, you know, there's nothing they can do to disappoint the sovereign. They didn't do anything to be elected by him. They're in his kingdom. In fact, the sovereign likes it when they're jerks to the other ones that he hasn't elected. He kind of likes it when they're mean. You see, because there's still the pagans out there and the riffraff out there in the mud. And this is the, this is the product of what John Calvin gave to the world through his Calvinism. Irresistible grace. God is so sovereign that once he decides to call, it's irresistible. You cannot refuse the election. Uh, his will must occur. You don't get to choose at all, okay? And the problems with assigning the term sovereign to God are as follows. First, it goes against scripture. Uh, unless you consider what Ephesians 1 says out of context, the scripture is, ex is replete with examples of things that God cannot do, will not do, is not capable of doing. So the false God of sovereignty created by Calvin appeals to reform theologians on an emotional and maybe even an intellectual level. This God is not described in scripture. And he, it is uh, the way that the Calvinists describe him today. In my estimation, these factors uh, refute irresistible grace. One final point, the P of TULIP uh, stands for perseverance of the saints, uh, which is another way to say once saved, always saved. Now I think about the, the, the seamless flow. To a reformed theologian, since God is the one doing the work and his work is from a sovereign, then if he elects, once he elects and you can't resist it, you can't fall from that either. And that comes to perseverance of the saints, the P and tulip. Works like this. You're totally depraved. He unconditionally decides, I'll take you into my kingdom. Jesus pays for your sins in a limited atonement. There's irresistible grace. You couldn't resist it, couldn't resist it. You will forever be his because the sovereign has elected you. You will persevere as a Christian forever. Perseverance of the saints, also known as once saved, always saved in, uh, in common theolog uh, theological circles. And uh, again, it's, I think it's heinous compared to what scripture teaches. Scripture completely refutes that. It, it absolutely, and I'm not going to go to the time to go through them. There's about seven sets of passages that slam once saved, always saved to the ground. But it doesn't matter. It's not part of the, the seamless system. And so they stand by that. And what do they say if you have a Christian who was 
uh, became a Christian when they were 17 and they had a religious experience and they walked and did all this stuff and then they turned and kind of fell and then they walked away. What do they say? They were never saved in the first place. God never elected them in the first place because if he had, they never would have walked. That's the logic that the Calvinists will use on people. Just recently, some, some guy who wrote a book about not dating as a Christian, big Christian name in the world of evangelicalism, just denounced the faith. And everyone is saying he never was of the faith. I just don't believe that's true. I think that you can be of the faith and you can choose to walk from it. The Calvinist says, no, why? It's never been in your hands to begin with. So go back to the fictitious kingdom, go back to the, those common peasants that were elected by the sovereign king to be in his family without exception. Imagine the attitude that will develop in the once mud-dwelling peasants who are called up, knighted, redressed, renamed, and elected to be a son in the family of the king. Imagine two things about them. First, imagine the attitude they would have towards the king. It would, of course, it would be adoring. It would be allegiant. It would be grateful. When they saw the king, they would give uh, the king their ultimate regard and respect. I mean, the sovereign did elect them to a life of luxury and they did nothing to earn it. They're not gonna believe it. And so they're going to give great respect to the king. But imagine their treatment, reception, and attitude toward those the king himself does not love, like, acknowledge, and who waddle in the mud. Imagine what his kids will be like toward those same people that they came from. Maybe not at first, but in time, those kids of the sovereign are going to turn into rat bastards toward those others uh, outside the kingdom walls. And that's not a fiction. It's founded on this very principle that we see within Calvinism. Let me tell you something. We're going to wrap it up today and we're going to get on to uh, how much time do we have? I don't even know. What time is it? 11, 12. We'll wrap it up here. But um, it's not a fiction. This is founded in the most popular movement among Christianity today, especially in our colleges and universities. That you ra- rarely will have somebody come out of a college or university that doesn't exit. They're a five-point confirmed Calvinist. And the, this is what it's creating. These types, this type of mindset that's coming out there. And so it's really not very conducive to a missional uh, effort because the Calvinist attitude, even though they'll share the gospel, their attitude is the elect are gods. He chooses, you know, they're not, they're not really, they don't really have much patience for people who reject it. And so we have a greater division between us versus them. That Christians coming out of these colleges are, are Calvinists and they're just like, we're it. The rest, let's, we'll just stay among ourselves and scratch each other's backs. And if you're not part of us, you're against us, get out of here. And it's, it's horrific. So just to wrap that up, I just want to read these five, these eight verses. This is what Paul says. And what I'm going to read to you is going to make it sound like, well, maybe Calvin had a point after everything I just said. And we'll end it with that. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he made us accepted in the beloved, 
in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will regarding the good pleasure that he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and in earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the course of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. Those words predestined us, called us. We're going to return and explain them verse by verse next week um, in part two of Ephesians 1, 4 through 12. Comments, questions, insights, please. I know that was a lot of preface, but it was necessary. Hi, Sean. Danny. Okay, so when you uh, left Mormonism and you went to Calvary Chapel, seminary, college, whatever, were you even aware of Calvinism? And they, that's where you probably learned about it, right? I learned more about it there. They take a dual approach. They take both elements of Calvin and elements of Arminianism, which is the, the opposite sort of and they combined them both, but I did learn about it there. Okay. Um, I, I was really surprised when I came out of Mormonism to find Christianity so divided in this regard. And the longer that I've been out and the more I associate and, and listen to and read, I find the majority of the people that I'm reading and listening to and interacting with are Reformed theology. You know, yeah. They're involved in the Reformed theology. Yeah. And the characteristics that you mentioned that come from them are true. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. And uh, and they're really hard-headed when it comes to trying to talk to them about it. Yeah. So I appreciate all the research you've done here to lay it out for us so we can, you know, maybe think about that ways in, in the future here with your sermons, how, yeah. how to communicate with these people. Yeah. Because, oh, let, here's the question I have for you. So. Here we are sitting here today, and many of us, if not all, are born again in the heart. We've been made, uh, we've received the Spirit, becoming new creatures. We're in that process. Maybe we haven't quite, but we're all on the, on the path to learning and to becoming His. Uh, how does So how do they judge us who believe in God, even though we don't understand Him the same way they do, are we less than or have, or have we been excluded from the atonement? It depends on how uh, fervent they are. Some are, you're not there yet. So, but I mean, just pure Calvinism, if we're not there? To some, yeah. To some, they'll say you're a heretic. Your doctrine isn't sound. You are not believing in the true yeah. and living God and gospel. It's that hardcore. Yeah. I, it's sad. Um, Talk about houses divided. Yeah. And you're, you're right. I mean, the people are being trained and taught, and it's really hard for them to get out of that. Yeah. So you, we have to be able to explain it to them. Yeah. In a loving way. Definitely a loving way. Hey, Sean. This is hey, Greg. Hey, Greg. Uh, when I first came out of Mormonism, I went to a Calvinist uh, church, not understanding that. Oh. And as I was going there, I was kind of picked to the side by some of the leadership there, and they wanted me to study with them. And they 
constantly were saying, you don't know anything. And I started watching this and I was like, boy, this is just like um, switching seats on the Titanic, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm seeing this elitist. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, and I saw them being mean to others and I was like, you know, the fruits of God is love. And, and how can you say you're a Christian and you can only love certain people that are in your club, you yeah. know? And so it was really uh, uninviting to me, let's yeah. just say that. So all this one gentleman particularly, he was just telling me, you don't know anything, you don't know anything. And I was like, I know what love is, you yeah. know? And I felt like Forrest Gump, I know what love is, you know? And, and I was just like, this isn't gonna work for me. And, and fortunately I found, found you and, and uh, wow. saw that. But uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it just seems like the elitist and prejudice of, yeah. of the same thing I just came out of. Yeah. And that being said, Gray, while we go to the next comment, wherever it is, um, before you go, Dan, how do we as non-Calvinists love the Calvinists? Because it's important that while they reject, that, that we include, right? And the way I do it, and this is still kind of mean, but I view them like you would view a really, really smart scientist or engineer at a party of artists. They are linear thinkers. They are tightly wound and they don't, they don't free up much. If they're gonna dance, it's like this. And that's the way God has made them. And so we gotta love them in their linear way and realize they do love God. They just have some things messed up rather than, I don't like their theology, but rather than attacking the ad hominem man love them as creations that just need things a little more tightly wound. <laughs> Dan. This is Dan. Uh, um, when you described uh, most of the uh, Calvinists that you know as being um, kind of exclusive and proud, you know, I, that, that just seems opposite to me of, Does it? of their theology. And here's why. Oh. The uh, oh, no no I, I have the same experience oh. with these people. It it doesn't it doesn't surprise me from my experience, but I'm trying to think logically. If you if you have free will and you chose God, okay, that would be seem to be more of a source of pride in my thinking. I yeah. don't know, maybe I'm backward. Then if God chose you for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, it seems like it would humble the heck out of you. Yeah, uh, so it seems the opposite to me. It does. I, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. Okay. I agree with you. It does seem the opposite. 